So hello, um, I'm Dahlia Lipsy, an ex-student at ISCA, and I currently work at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And so today I'm just going to talk a little bit about uh, my background in medical anthropology and how it got me to where I am now, uh, what, it, what actually I do do now, and uh, where I hope to be in the future, and how I feel that MedAnth has influenced me along the way. So I started off, my relationship with MedAnt started off in my undergrad as I did um, archaeology and anthropology uh, here at Oxford at Keeble College and took medical anthropology as one of my optional papers in uh, the last two years and enjoyed it so much that I then went on to do the MSc at Oxford um, at Green College and my thesis was actually looking at organ donation and the theories that come out of anthropology to do with gift exchange and commodity exchange and whether they could be applied in the context of organ transfer. So um, the topic of this panel really made me smile because it's exactly the dilemma that I was in in 2007 thinking, oh, do you carry on with academia or do you go out into the real world? And I decided to go into the real world and see what it was all about and um, at the time really didn't know, you know, you kind of theoretically know how medical anthropology can help um, influence healthcare, but I couldn't really see exactly how it would work. And I was looking at the kinds of jobs I was applying for, the jobs that were out there, so it was a kind of a learning curve. So where did I go next? Um, the first position I took up was as a research coordinator at um, the International Trust for Traditional Medicine in India, and it was actually founded by um, an Oxford medical anthropologist, Barbara Gurk, who's here today. And I think Barbara, the the term is madam was actually how we referred to there as well, but it officially was a research coordinator. And ITCM, as it's called, um, is a research centre dedicated to the study of Indo-Tibetan and allied medical health systems. And um, like I said, it was established in 1995. And at the time I went out there, Barbara was in Oxford writing up her thesis, and so I just went to coordinate the activities of the centre. And so there are staff there engaged in a project of data input for um, Tibetan medical texts and also the cultivation of a medicinal garden. So I just went to uh, help coordinate those activities as well as any um, visiting researchers who attended uh, the centre just help them setting up their field sites or putting them in touch with local experts or local um, practitioners. So in that sense, medical anthropology was very relevant for that post, but sadly that kind of came to an end and I came back to England and then took up a job at uh, the Institute of Child Health, which is the research arm for Great Ormond Street Hospital. And there took on a role of Research Adoptions Committee Secretary, that was my job title, and looking at the job title and the job description, I had no idea how relevant medical anthropology would be. But in the end, it actually was quite relevant, because my job there was really to monitor clinical trials, and um, I was trained in good clinical practice which is a kind of ethical and scientific standard for um, clinical trials. And in ICH, a lot of the research is actually in an international context, so it actually became quite relevant looking at how you translate these standards in those kinds of contexts. And that led me to be quite interested in the idea of health policy and how you implement policies. And so I took a kind of complete shift and went to work for a UK government think tank, which had a health policy um, arm. And I'm not going to go into life in a think tank in this talk. I think Hannah alluded to some of the things that, you know, it's quite interesting seeing the kind of cultural clashes between media and politics and funding and how that actually influences this idea of evidence-based policy. So it's very interesting, but um, led me to kind of want to really concentrate on working in an international health context. And so that's how I ended up at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine where my job now is a research coordinator for a number of malaria projects. 
and that's really what I'm going to talk about today. So just to start with um, malaria, a bit of a background on malaria, um, approximately half the world's population remains at risk of malaria. Malaria is the third most important single infectious co uh, disease, cause of, of death in the last decade, killing 800,000 people a year and causing 225 million illness episodes. Um, it's responsible for millions of lost days of work and education. The vast majority of malaria deaths occur in Africa. So at the London School of Hygiene and Tro Tropical Medicine, we currently have about 250 research staff, students and um, support staff working on malaria. So it's the kind of the largest group of people under one roof working on malaria in the world. And our work stretches from basic science right up to social sciences and economics research. It's a great place for a medical anthropologist to go and work, actually. And so one of part of my job is coordinating the Malaria Centre, which brings all of these people together working on malaria. And um, we organise lots of seminars and events and networking opportunities for people to come together. We also disseminate the work of um, our members by things like the report that we produce. And um, we also coordinate all of the malaria teaching at the London School. So that's part of my job there. And the other part of my job, which actually takes up the majority of my time, is administering something called the Malaria Capacity Development Consortium. And that's what I'm going to talk about now. So the um, MCDC is a consortium of nine partners, and as the title suggests, aims to improve malaria research capacity in Africa. So I thought it might be just helpful to provide a definition of what capacity building is. So the UN Development Programme has defined capacity as the ability of individual institutions and societies to perform functions, solve problems and set and achieve objectives in a sustainable manner. And so the term capacity building or capacity development describes the task of establishing human and institutional capacity. And right from the outset, there is a whole discussion about whether capacity development is a suitable term rather than capacity building. Or So, I mean, it's kind of... From the beginning becomes quite an interesting um, anthropological question. So why capacity building? Well it's long been recognised that a sustainable way to improve health outcomes in developing countries is to build local research and innovation capacity as evidence generated by local researchers is invaluable in forming the decision making process and ultimately in impacting the health of a population. So universities contribute to healthcare improvement by training researchers and providing enabling research environments. But traditionally, aid agencies have tended to develop research capacity by, um, in low-income countries by providing training um, in wealthy countries for researchers. And so consequently, very few um, low-income African countries are able to home-grow their own researchers. So this is exactly what MCDC tries to address as the project trains and supports African researchers within institutions within their home countries and then works with the institutions to develop systems to support their own workforce, strengthen services, and um, build strong research infrastructure. Sorry. So MCDC is a consortium of nine partners, five African partners in Malawi, Tanzania, Ghana, Uganda, and Senegal, and then three European partners, such as two centres in Copenhagen, the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, and also the London School of Tropical Medicine, where I'm based. And like most partnerships, our aims are to work together to promote equity and sustainability. So these are words that we hear all the time in, in, in partnerships and consortiums. So how do we do this? Well, there are three components of MCDC. The first is training um, researchers of the future. And in itself, this represents a paradigm shift in recent years by providing in providing doctoral um, training for African researchers because, like I said initially, students were expected to leave their home institutions 
um, to attend full-time doctoral programmes in a wealthy country university, which often led them to have skills that they couldn't use when they returned back to their home institutions where they struggled to find positions or posts or facilities and laboratories in which to actually work. So MCDC has recruited 19 African students, but they're all um, actually based within Africa. And although they're linked to a European partner, they will get their degrees from their African institution. The second, oh, sorry, the second um, component is institutional capacity building. So obviously initiating a PhD programme on its own wouldn't have worked in many of these settings where the me mechanics of PhD registration and support is um, underdeveloped in some areas. So MCDC also works with our partner institutions to develop the PhD programmes themselves. So a baseline needs assessment was carried out in 2008 to identify the kind of gaps and areas um, for development within the institutions. And these included things like a lack of PhD regulations or problems accessing the internet or journals a lack of quiet space, and also development was identified, um, a need for development in terms of supervision was also identified. And so we're now working with the institutions to try and implement some of the recommendations that were made in that baseline needs assessment. And the third strand of NCDC is to support a cohort of postdocs who are continuing their uh, research in Africa. So the Gates Malaria Partnership was a project at the London School of Hygiene that went for 10 years and funded um, 29 PhD students. But unlike MCDC, they were actually registered either in Copenhagen, Liverpool or um, London and then went to do their fieldwork in Africa and they encountered a lot of problems when they returned. And so the um, Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has continued to support that cohort of students through MCDC and so we bring them together um, for networking opportunities and also provide um, a series of small grants to allow them to continue their research in Africa. And so at this stage I thought it would be sorry if I've been going the wrong way with my um, just thought it'd be useful to talk about some of the thing, the themes that I feel are relevant as a medical anthropologist in making partnerships work and just pulled out some of the things that we talk about within our team quite a lot which are equity, sustainability, cultural sensitivity and good communication. So by equity I mean that obviously working with lots of international partners it's often important to make sure that it's clear that there are benefits for everybody who are involved and um, sometimes these have to be made quite explicit so that it's not seen as, you know, the northern institutions are called imposing their own ideas on their southern partners. Um, sustainability is another term that comes out a lot and obviously ensuring the long-term sustainability of a project like this beyond the life of the project um, can run into all sorts of difficulties, especially in the kind of current funding climate. So whenever we try and introduce an initiative, we're always thinking about how it can be sustainable. So for example, we've just uh, introduced a series of uh, courses to train supervisors. And we're now in the second phase of that by introducing lots of training, the trainer courses to make sure that there are people within the institutions who can carry this forward beyond the life of the project. Um, by cultural sensitivity, there's a lot of uh, wariness on our part of of trying to translate concepts um, into different cultures. So, for example, I've just spent a few weeks in Ghana trying to put together some PhD regulations for one of our partner institutions. And I think when we arrived, they kind of said, oh, well, can't you just give us the regulations from the London School and we'll just change the name and change you know, to our university. And actually, when we set about the process of trying to go through this, there was so much in it that was just not relevant for that kind of context. So it was you know, just working through things like that and then obviously good communication is the key to any partnership and when working with um, international colleagues that's particularly important and technology helps in this respect so we obviously use a lot of 
um, Skype and email, but we've also set up our own kind of, it's almost like a Facebook uh, function. So it's kind of a social networking site where all of our students and um, postdocs are linked up to, and we can actually communicate quite a lot that way. So those are just some kind of more observations, and that's really how I feel that anthropology has kind of helped in my current role. And then really looking at um, where do I go next? Um, I've actually just, unfortunately, MCDC is going to be going for another two years, but I'm not going to be there to see the students actually finish because I'm going to um, go and do my own PhD actually in Durham. So I've just got accepted for an ESRC studentship. And I'll, this is the title I'll be looking at, Facilitating School Children as Change Agents of Malaria Health Behaviours in the Household, Use of Participatory Video in Ghana. And I won't sorry, <laughs> spend a lot of time going through this, but basically the aims of the project are to investigate the use of participatory video as a tool for children to explore their malaria health-related practices and to understand the wider context that affects their ability to change these practices. And this really just came out of the observation that... Um, Children, there's a lot of focus on children at the moment as being a potentially uh, useful source of changing health behaviours at a household level. And although malaria mainly affects uh, mothers and sorry, pregnant women and babies, the cohort of children um, who are benefiting from malaria interventions at the moment as they grow up and they go to school, they will actually um, not have the natural immunity to malaria. So there's a potential to have to refocus interventions on, on those people now. So I, won't, I don't have time, unfortunately, to go through the rest of that, but <laughs> thank you very much for listening.